I'm James Gray, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is filmmaker Steve James. James is perhaps best known for his documentaries, including Hoop Dreams, The Interrupters, Stevie, and many more. We'll be talking about Hoop Dreams, which turned 20 this year, documentary filmmaking, and his most recent project, Life Itself. That film is about the life and death of film critic Roger Ebert. James is visiting the Indiana University Cinema as a part of the Jorgensen Guest Filmmaker Lecture Series. Steve James, thank you for being here today. Great to be here. So Hoop Dreams is the story of two boys who, throughout high school, both want to be in the NBA, and they face personal challenges as you film them on and off for uh, upwards of four years. Is it four to five? Yeah, between four and five. Mm -hmm. And the film captures, I think, something very special about what it means to have aspirations in America and it uses basketball as a lens to explore culture and identity. It turned 20 years old this year. The filmmaking took place over five, about four to five years, so the production anniversary is actually closer to 20 <laughs> or 25 years. More like 25, yeah, for yeah. sure. So where were you at in your life when you began production on Hoop Dreams? Where was I at? Well, it, actually, it was 1987, so it's longer than 25 years because it took us about seven and a half years to make the movie, even though we shot for four and a half, let's say. Well, I was in Chicago, obviously, uh, or maybe not so obviously, but living in Chicago. I'd been in town only for a couple of years, and I was mostly working my way up the food chain on the commercial production side to just try to make a living while pursuing Hoop Dreams as a passion project with my partners, Peter Gilbert and Frederick Marx. So when I, and when I first got to Chicago, I was, I think, the oldest, most educated production assistant on TV commercials. Uh, I had a master's in film, and I started at the bottom, you know, sweeping sets and stocking coolers and such. And when you started making Hoop Dreams, it was uh, supposed to be just about streetball, right, in Chicago? My original idea was to center the whole film on a single court, ideally, in Chicago, and be about the street game, but through that, sort of have it be also about the central importance that basketball plays in the life of those neighborhoods or that particular neighborhood that we might focus on and the importance of that game to families, to young dreamers to as a way out. So I always saw it as having a kind of social dimension and looking at America to some degree through this lens, but not what it became. In fact, a few years after Hoop Dreams came out, a film called Soul to the Whole came out, which focused on a single playground in New York. So it, it actually ended up doing more like what we originally set out to do. But it all changed because we discovered Arthur Agee through Big Earl Gates, who at the beginning of the movie, you meet Big Earl, and he's going around looking for young players on a playground, and he sees Arthur. And really, Big Earl was taking us around to look for a playground to focus on when he first saw Arthur. And he just became very interested in him, wanted to recruit him. And we thought, wow, this is really fascinating. So in a strange way, you know, the film started out to be focused on a single playground, but it ended up being a film about what happens when you leave the playground in a way. I know that you played basketball in high school. And I was wondering if you saw a little bit of yourself in Arthur. (laughs) Uh, See, I wonder how Arthur would answer that. What I saw was my own, if you will, white bread version of having the dream. I mean, I I grew up loving basketball. 
it really was my complete passion uh, in my youth. I could care less about school. School was just a means to be on the basketball team, in my view, when I was growing up. I played it all year round for the most part and focused on it and had every intention of being a great college player and then going on to the NBA until I realized when I was about a junior in high school that the NBA certainly wasn't going to happen, and, and I'm not so sure that a uh, college uh, career is going to happen much either. So in that way, I did see that, but I also saw a difference between what you know the dream meant for me and what it meant for Arthur, because I knew that basketball wasn't the only ticket or way for me to go to college at all or or to you know move on. For kids like Arthur growing up in the city, it shouldn't be either, but too often it it appears to be the, the only way. And and it's not like they're stupid about that either because they look around themselves in the neighborhoods and they see that sports is and has been a viable way for other people to get out and go to college. And they don't see that happening in a lot of other professions that people always want to say, why don't you focus on, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a, like a scientist or a yeah. Why don't you be a doctor? Or why don't, yeah, why don't you be a lawyer? And they go, you know, I think they look around. They go, I don't know any doctors or lawyers in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, some of that is a function of the way in which um, poor communities have changed over the decades in America. There was a time uh, decades ago when a poor neighborhood, a uh, black poor neighborhood in a big city, actually had a uh, a real sort of economic stratification, because, and it was in due in large measure to racism. Uh, a black doctor had to live in that neighborhood because a black doctor couldn't live in the suburbs in, a, in an affluent neighborhood. So it was through racism, but, but one of the things that, that people growing up in those neighborhoods saw was a range of possibilities that unfortunately kind of went away as people began to move out of those neighborhoods and into more affluent neighborhoods so that what was left behind were largely much poorer families with fewer options. Mm-hmm. And so you saw that in Arthur and whenever he was on the court. Well, I didn't see all of that. But I mean, I think that's the the world that he lived in. And so when he and, or, and William went mm-hmm. to play basketball, uh, it was fraught with greater significance for them as a pursuit than it was for myself. I mean, the other thing is, is that I grew up, I had, you know, teammates who were black over the years and played a lot of ball with black players, but I I hadn't really gotten to know them in in a kind of significant way. And I only realized this years later that I think wanting to do Hoop Dreams in a way was, was trying to kind of understand what this game meant to some of the guys I played with all those years. That, that you know, I didn't really put that together when I came up with the idea. I didn't put it together during the making of the film. It was really only upon reflection and looking back some years afterwards that I kind of realized that that had to be some of what was the epiphany for me to want to do the film. Yeah, I don't mean to jump ahead so far, but you made a film called No Crossover, The Trial of Alan Iverson as part of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary series. And in that film, you got to go back to your hometown, Hampton, Virginia, and explore the racial tensions that were there. What was that experience like? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think it was around making the, that film that I had this realization about hoop dreams, frankly. What was that like? You know, when I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, I, I mostly just wanted to leave. 
I mean, fairly early on, I was like, this is not a place I want to live. I want to go someplace more interesting, more exciting. And so I tended to dismiss my hometown as a kind of backwater, small city that, you know, uh, you know I, I just couldn't wait to leave, which was a tremendous disservice to it. So when I, when I had an opportunity to do this film, I did sort of see it as a chance to go back and try to understand something about my hometown that I had not had any interest or was too young to, to realize those years growing up. And, and the sort of window into that was Allen Iverson, who, you know, if you follow basketball, you know, was a great uh, basketball player. He retired officially re- recently. But he grew up in my hometown. He came along about 20 years after me in terms of his playing career. He did just a little bit better than me uh, as a (laughs) basketball player. I think he averaged 20 points more a game than I did um, and won a few accolades. But when he was in high school, he was involved in this racial bowling alley brawl. And it really cleaved my hometown, mostly along lines of race, although not exclusively. Uh, Iverson was a star there, but he was also a, a player that a lot of people, particularly in the white community, thought was a kind of uh, cocky uh, kid who who had been um, given all kinds of passes in terms of his behavior. Uh, you know, so even though he was embraced as this tremendous player, both football and basketball, there was this potential there to turn on him, and it happened as a result of this bowling alley brawl. And so he, it really divided my hometown. It became a huge legal issue. Jesse Jackson came to town briefly. I mean, it really was divisive. And so I wanted to go back and understand how was it possible that a simple bowling alley brawl, in which some people were hurt, but no one particularly seriously, uh, how could this incident happen to be so divisive around an athlete who was that revered? Because the one thing I remembered about growing up in Hampton was is that the high school stars were revered. We had no pro team there for the most part. The college teams weren't big, you know, significant uh, sports teams. And so high school athletes were everything. And what you discovered was that the tension was just there and this was the... It's almost like this was the powder keg or whatever, the, the fuse. You know, I think race in America, I've been fascinated with the issue of race in America uh, really since I was a teenager because it was when I was a teenager and playing basketball uh, and having black teammates, but yet I lived in a neighborhood at that time which was um, virtually all white and had a reputation, at least a little, the deeper you went into the neighborhood that I lived in, it had a reputation for being quite racist. And to this day, you drive down the road from my my home, my mom still lives there, um, you don't have to go too far before you see some Confederate flags flying on porches. So, you know, I, I was kind of living in these two very different worlds. My dad's store was in a quote-unquote dicey part of town, meaning a black part of town, um, you know, I never saw anything that dicey happen there, you know, certainly not compared to, you know, having been in Chicago all these years. So I, I kind of felt like I was kind of straddling two different worlds between my sports, between working for my dad in the summers and where I lived. And it really kind of brought race to my attention. And 
And so over the years, a lot of the films I've done, Hoop Dreams is an example. Obviously, the uh, No Crossover, the 30 for 30 is an example. Um, other films I've done have uh, have sort of dealt with race in some fashion. I've been fascinated with it. And I, and I feel like race is this kind of – we talk a lot about race in America and we talk around it a lot, but we never really talk to each other across lines of race about what's going on. And I thought with this film it would be an, it would be a way to try to address issues of race and class and sports um, and really go right at it uh, because it was such a divisive moment in the history of my hometown, which, as I found out during the course of making this film, and, and I never learned this in my history classes when I was in school there, I, I had to learn it from the um, traveler brochure in the hotel room. And I love the way they put it, and I put this in the movie. They said, um, you know, the shores of Hampton where African Americans first disembarked in America. Well, they were slaves. <laughs> it made it sound like they came here on holiday, you know. Uh, when I read that, I just thought, well, that's too perfect. I've got to put that in the movie because that spoke to the way in which history was viewed there growing up. It was kind of shunted to the side, that aspect of our history. Kind of like the conversation about race itself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, it's, you know, I remember uh, this is a little off topic, but I think it's relevant. You know, I remember a few years ago when there was that incident with Henry Louis Gates, the professor from Harvard and the state trooper. When Gates was trying to get into his home, he'd been away on vacation, forgot his key or something. And he was trying to open the window in the front of his home to get in. And a state trooper stopped, and they got into an altercation because the state trooper thought he was trying to break into a home. And Gates was claiming, you know, and very angry and saying, this is my home. And there were all kinds of assumptions made in that moment between both, I think, between Gates and the state trooper about who the other was and what was going on there. It became a huge national issue, and it resulted in um, Obama having the beer summit where he got the two of them together and they sat at a picnic table on the White House lawn and drank some beers and talked it out, which was good. But what was unfortunate about it was is that they talked it out in private, you know, and none of the rest of us got to hear it. And I, thought, I felt like that's such a perfect example of what is wrong with the discussion of race in this country, which is we don't have the conversation – between blacks and whites and Latinos and and make it a national conversation. We're too busy choosing sides and, and defending our side. There's one scene in the film where you're speaking with speaking with someone and they say they ask you why you're making the film as a white director and you say, because if I can't understand the story as a white director and I can't understand both sides, then there's no hope. Yeah, that's Joyce Hobson, who, um, who amazing woman who was uh, a teacher at Hampton High, where I went to school, and uh, and she was a leader in terms of rallying support for Allen Iverson and his black teammates and friends who were involved in the bowling alley brawl. Only the blacks were charged and went to trial. None of the whites who participated in the brawl were charged or went to trial. This was some of the things that angered so many people uh, in the black community. And Joyce, Joyce was the leader of that, of that effort. And I chased her for six months to do an interview. And what was interesting was the fact that I 
was from Hampton and had played ball in Hampton was was a great door opener generally because this was an issue that people just really didn't want to drum back up and talk about. People don't like talking about it. But because of who I was, it helped get people to cooperate, everyone except Joyce. And I learned, you know, my efforts to ingratiate myself with her of saying, hey, I played ball at Hampton. I went to Hampton. I'm from Hampton. At one point, she says, that's why I don't want to talk to you, because I can't believe that if you grew up here as a white person, that you'll possibly tell the story in the right way. And so when we finally sat down for the interview, I knew that given the topic of this film, that it was important to have her address that in the film and say, this is why I resisted. Uh, But thank God she didn't completely resist. She's an important voice in the film. And to me, in a a small anecdotal way, it's an example of what can possibly happen when effort is made on both sides. After the film came out, she was very happy with the film. She went to some film festivals with the film. She used the film in her classes in Hampton High School. And so I just love the fact that we were able to get past that between the two of us and, and have her participate and, and be an important voice in the film. What did you do to ensure that you didn't, even on a, a subconscious level, present a white narrative of this situation? I don't know that I didn't in a way, but it didn't preclude the voices, different voices. My goal in making the movie was to really get people to really speak candidly about their feelings, about what happened. In other words, you know, there's been, ever since that incident happened, which is over 20 years ago now, there's been debate about what did Allen Iverson actually do in that bowling alley brawl. Did he actually, as he was charged and convicted, hit a white woman over the head with a chair and give her six stitches in a concussion? And there's been much debate over the years about from people who said, I know Allen Iverson, he would never hit a woman. And other people saying, are you kidding me? He was a thug. He would do anything in a fight. You know, this kind of debate has raged for years and years and years, which to me was ultimately beside the point of what, what I was trying to understand. Because what really went on in that bowling alley is only really known by a handful of people. And maybe even they don't completely know because it was chaos. I really was trying to go there and understand why this incident was so divisive. And so I really wanted to hear from people on both sides of this issue about how they truly felt about Allen Iverson, about race, about that incident. And so that was the goal of this. And so like when I would go down and interview white people who I thought were not terribly liberal in their point of view about this, about this incident, I took an all-white crew with me. The main camera person on the film except for those shoots, was uh, an African-American, Keith Walker, who I've worked with numerous times on films. And it was great to have him be a part of this for several reasons. One was, is that when we were interviewing black subjects about the film, I think Keith was an important voice in that conversation. He would ask questions as well as I would. And then there were some interesting things that happened that you see in the film where he interacted with me around around what was going on. And, I, and again, these were things that normally you might not include in a film, but in this case, I felt like they were extremely relevant when I was telling a story about how a guy that worked for my dad, and my dad had a carpeting and floor tile business, and one of the white guys that worked for him used to use the N-word constantly, except when a black customer would walk through the door, and then he was all very nice and friendly and courteous. And I'm telling this story in the film, 
And Keith, the cameraman, says to me, did you ever, uh, did you ever tell him he shouldn't use that word? You know, and I was like, no, I didn't. It made me uncomfortable, but I never said stop saying that word. And so those kind of moments, you know, to have Keith sort of kind of bring me up short and kind of say, well, you know, what about you? I thought that, you know, it was just such an important part of the, uh, of the process of making a movie like that. You know, one of my favorite moments is when he asks you uh, if you ever wanted to be black. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because I'm talking about playing ball and my black teammates and all of this. And, yeah, and he says yes. He, and he goes, uh, given, given that the overwhelming number of the greatest ball players and even the current ball players in the NBA are black, he, you know, that was kind of the thrust of that was, did you ever want to be black so that maybe you might be a better ball player? And I, I, and I said, no, I never wanted to be black. I wish I could play like some of the black players that, that, that I played with over the years. And then I turned it back on him and I said, did you ever wish you were white? And without hesitation, he said, absolutely. And it had nothing to do with sports. You're listening to Profiles. Our guest today is Steve James. So originally, when you cut Hoop Dreams, it was 10 hours long. Is that true? So they well, I don't know. It was long. <laughs> what, what were some of the moments that you had to get rid of that you wish you could have kept in? <laughs> There's lots of stuff that, you know, I bet if I went back now and looked at all the raw footage, which I would not do, or if I found that really long cut that Frederick Marx uh, first put together as, uh, as one of the, the editors on the film, I'm sure I'd see some really great moments. It'd be like, oh, we should have figured out a way to put that in. There are two that very much spring to mind. The good news is is that there will be a, um, a Blu-ray of Hoop Dreams coming out at some point here, not too distant future, with this restored version. And we're going to include outtake scenes from the movie. So two, these two will be in there. So one of them that I really kicked myself for not putting in was that when Arthur was, uh, I think, during his sophomore year uh, in high school, they came to town to shoot a TV movie called The Mary Thomas Story, which was a story about Isaiah Thomas, the great basketball player from Chicago, who Arthur emulated and adopted his childhood nickname. He loved our, uh, Isaiah's game so much. Anyway, Isaiah hailed from the West Side, just like Arthur, and his mother, Mary Thomas, was this famously tough, you know, quote-unquote ghetto mom who protected her kids against all the bad influences in the neighborhood. So this was a film about Mary Thomas. Of course, Isaiah Thomas is part of the story, but it was focused on his mother. She famously threatened gang bangers off her front porch with a shotgun to protect her sons. That was one of the great legendary stories. 
So they came to town to shoot this TV movie called The Mary Thomas Story, and they were looking to cast a young Isaiah Thomas, and they decided to put out a casting call to anyone and everyone who thinks they might have, have the talent to play the role. Arthur heard about it, and he, along with many, many other black kids in Chicago, went in and auditioned. And we got the audition tape. He was actually quite good. And we got him going to the casting. He didn't get the part, obviously, but he did audition, which was just kind of really amazing to us. And then they, when they went to shoot the movie, they shot it uh, in part out at St. Joe's, where Arthur no longer was, but William was. And so they shot scenes out in the gym at St. Joe's, and we went and filmed them making the Mary Thomas story out there. And William was in the stands, and Coach Pingator was showing the actor playing him how to handle a huddle. <laughs> I mean, it's actually quite hilarious. You, 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 right. It should have been in the movie, right? There's no question it should have been in the movie. But for some unknown reason, we decided to take it out of the movie, which, you know, I rue to this day. But at least it's great extra. The other scene that I really loved, and again, I understand why it wasn't in the movie, because you get down towards the end of the movie and you, there's already enough in this movie. It's three hours long and you're trying to finish it up. So I understand this one more, but it still was quite, really quite good which was prom day, senior year for both Arthur and William. We shot them preparing to go to the prom, and then we asked them to take pictures of and uh, at the prom itself because we weren't allowed to go film in the prom. And so you see William and Catherine, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, and they have four kids together. But you see them preparing to go to the prom, and she had made his cummerbund to match her dress. And so it was just really this really sweet and beautiful kind of moment of them getting ready to go to the prom, this loving couple, and they get in the car and leave. And then then you cut to Arthur going to his prom, and he's arguing with his mom over his coat for a while. And then you find we find out his, his date for the prom shows up, and it's not his girlfriend. We know his girlfriend. It's not his girlfriend. And we find out that he's agreed to go to the prom with a girl in the school who has a crush on him, and she's agreed to pay for half the prom. That was the deal he made with her. So... He didn't have to foot the bill for the whole thing. And she shows up with Tuss, his nickname, on each of her four <laughs> fingernails. And then the couple they're going with shows up, and they come, and they're amazing. They show up in literally a matching dress and tux, purple tux and dress. Why isn't that in the movie, right? I don't know. We had no sense of humor, I guess. <laughs> so Isaiah Thomas has a large legacy here in Bloomington. Playing, That's right. Playing for IU. And his presence in Hoop Dreams is kind of felt throughout the entire movie. He he looms over Chicago in a way. You see posters in the background. And then, of course, in the beginning when Arthur gets to play one-on-one with him. Right. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Chicago in that time period and the role of Isaiah Thomas and what was going on in the <clears throat> with basketball for Chicago in the late 80s? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, Isaiah really was in a way, kind of Chicago's favorite son uh, for a long time as a basketball star. I mean, he was a, you know, a terrific player, an all-NBA, uh, NBA Hall of Fame guard. He epitomized a kind of Chicago style of basketball. He he was this small but very tough, take-no-prisoners uh, kind of player. And that's, you know, that kind of rough and tough Chicago attitude is, is sort of something you find among the better players that, that have come out of there. Yeah, he really was a kind of symbol of Chicago basketball for many, many years. Now, when Michael Jordan came in 
which is which happened and was there. You know, Michael Jordan was was in the time we were filming Hoop Dreams. You know, he was probably starting his second or third year in the league. I think when we started filming, and then by the time we finished filming, he was winning his first championship, or so, or close to it. He really took over Chicago. He came to symbolize Chicago basketball, even though he's from North Carolina. But I think up until Jordan really kind of assumed that mantle, Isaiah really was the guy and remained, you know, remain uh, highly regarded and to this day highly regarded among people who, who follow and love Chicago basketball. You know, plus Isaiah hailed from the west side of Chicago, which even though he went to St. Joe's, and made that program, literally. And he hailed from the west side of Chicago, which takes tremendous pride as being where the best basketball in Chicago is played. Now, if you talk to somebody from the south side, they will disagree vociferously. But, you know, the west siders take tremendous pride. So we've been talking a lot about sports and culture and identity, uh, race and society. And I wanted to ask, in this time, in this era of statistical analysis and fantasy sports, you know, what role do true sports stories have? What role do true sports stories have? Well, I mean, I think, you know, from the time I was growing up and I came from a very sports mad family, my father was a tremendous athlete, um, played college football, ran track, was a terrific baseball player, you know, that's why I went into basketball to avoid those sports that he excelled at. You know, we, I grew up in a sports med family. We got Sports Illustrated from the time I can remember, you know, being into sports. I still get Sports Illustrated. <laughs> but one of the things I remember always loving to read in that magazine when it would come every week was the profiles of a famous athlete. I loved reading about this. And oftentimes the best stories were these sort of rags to riches kind of stories of, of athletes – often basketball players or football players who came from very poor, destitute backgrounds who by will and determination and talent had overcome and become successful, great athletes. And I never got tired of reading those stories. And I think that, you know, to this day, those stories still hold, you know, have a hold over us. It, it's They speak to kind of the, you know, the this notion of the American spirit, you know, even though it's not just the American spirit, it's, you know, it's true of in every culture. But we tend to think of it as the American dream and the kind of self-made man or woman. It hooks into all those things. And so I think there's always a thirst for those kind of stories. Now, those stories have become almost a kind of cliche, even if the reality of someone's life is far from it. It's sort of the cliche. And I think so one of the ways in which the stories have changed over the years is is that there's also been an equal and great fascination in the more tragic stories of athletes who have risen and fallen because that's a true aspect of the world as well and I think there's in some ways there's there you didn't read many of those stories when I was growing up because those stories were kind of considered more off limits I think sports is this incredible prism through which to view American life and society it is, it has everything, you know, you, you can make a sports film that kind of is about anything that goes on in the world in a, in a weird sort of way. I think what, what that frame around it allows is 
that there are always seemingly clear, distinct winners and losers. Uh, and it's the one arena in which um, it's sort of the drama of everyday life is writ large. Your most recent film is Life Itself, a documentary, expansion, adaptation of the memoir by Roger Ebert. As he began making the film, Ebert said his hip was sore, and it turned out that his cancer had returned, and he passed away during the filming. The film explores Ebert's life, but it also captures an intimate portrait of a brave man facing his own death. How well did you know Ebert before making the film? I didn't know him well at all. Um, you, you know, I, I had read his reviews when I started uh, to really study film because I was in Southern Illinois and so I saw the show, tripped across it and started watching it and was fascinated with it and, and enjoyed it. Then when I moved to Chicago, I started reading him. And then when Hoop Dreams came out, he and Gene did this extraordinary thing really. They, they agreed to watch this three-hour documentary even though it had no distribution. It was just going to Sundance. And they watched it and they... You know, they loved it so much that they decided to go on their show and review it, even though it was not in distribution. And they said as much and said and made a plug for this film deserves to be in theaters, which was huge for that film because it it was a three hour documentary about two kids and their families that no one had ever heard of. And so that's how I kind of first, in a way, met them. But I really didn't physically meet uh, Roger until. Ten months later at the Toronto Film Festival at a dinner, and it was very nice and casual. But since I didn't sit next to him, I really didn't even talk to him hardly at all. And and then over the years, he, you know, a couple of times he interviewed me about movies or because we both were in Chicago, I would run into him at some event, a film event or such. And I was it was always very friendly and courteous. And then I would scurry away because I really believed that he being a film critic and me being a filmmaker, that we're not supposed to fraternize. Uh, so I didn't really know know him well at all. It, uh, and, and so when the opportunity came along to do this film, the idea was presented to me. Uh, I hadn't read the memoir. And so I quickly read the memoir. And I just thought, what an amazing book. What a beautiful book. And so then I said, yes, I'd love to do this. And so really the making of the film was the chance to really get to know Roger. It was, as you said, it was cut short because he died four months into it. But I did get those four months to, to um, in the course of making the film, to kind of get to know him. And he didn't get nearly as far along in that process as I would have liked. But I think it, I think it helped the film that I didn't know Roger that well going in. And that I wasn't a friend, a real friend, because I think it freed me up to make uh, what I hope is a more candid portrait, though admiring, because I wouldn't have made the film if I didn't admire him. He'd done too much to support my career for me to go make a film on Roger Ebert and try to knock him down a few pegs. But I wanted it to be candid. He wanted it to be candid. He wanted it to show his life as it was in those last years. And so we did. And I wanted that too. And so it really was this extraordinary experience if one that was cut far too short. Was there anything in the book, when you read the book, did you think there's something missing that I want to show in the film? Yes. There was a lot in the book. And there's a lot in the book I would have loved to put in the film that I didn't. Um, But it was a great template 
more than a template. It was like a Bible for the movie. And I mean, it's why we say it's based on the memoir and it truly is. But the one thing that he did not deal with in any great length and, and depth was the show with Gene. He has a chapter devoted to Gene and he talks about things that happened on the show, but he really doesn't dig in. And I knew that that was something that I really wanted to dig into. There was this great oral history done by Josh Schulmeyer called Enemies, A Love Story. It's like a 20, in its fullest version, it's like a 20,000 word oral history. We brought Josh on as a co-producer, terrific guy, terrific piece he did. And that piece that he did became the template and basis for really digging in, in depth into the relationship between Gene and Roger and how the show was born and changed and impact that it had. Roger didn't deal with hardly any of that in the book. I think in part because two reasons. One is is that he was looking back at his relationship with Gene through rose-colored glasses. Gene had been gone. When Roger wrote the memoir, Gene had died 12 years earlier. Roger was facing his own medical travails. And I think he looked back on that relationship understandably with great fondness, not remembering so much all the, the, or at least not even wanting to write about all the difficulties. So I think that was part of it. I think the other part of why he didn't dig into the show in, in depth is because he knew that the show was a major part of his legacy. And I think he probably worried that if he wrote too much about the show, it would look too self-aggrandizing. It would look like he's saying, look at me, look at all I did with this show. And, I, and he did not want to do that. I think he wanted to focus the book on the part of his life which was least well-known, uh, you know, and, and, and make it a more personal memoir than one about his professional career. Yeah. The relationship, though, is so much a part of his personal life, as you see in the film, because the two get along almost like, like family. There's this, yeah. there's this... Or don't get along like family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The way they fight, though, it, there is sort of a love built into it, it feels sometimes. Yeah. As people remark in the film, it was like a sibling rivalry. There was clearly always, I think, both of them would readily have admitted this. There was, a, there was clearly an underlying respect for each other's knowledge, intelligence, debating ability. You know, these were two guys that were used to always being the smartest guys in the room when it came to film, and here they were both in the same room. These were two guys who came from very different backgrounds. Both uh, had their share of, of sort of tragedy. Gene lost both his parents when he was young and ended up living with his aunt and uncle and her kids. But he also was in a, in a you know, a better situation economically. He lived on the North Shore of Chicago. He went to Yale. Roger always wanted to go to an Ivy League school, could have gone academically, but his family couldn't afford it. So he ended up at U of I. Um, you know, Gene ended up at the Tribune, which was the Blue Blood Republican paper. Roger ended up at the People's Paper, the Sun-Times. They had lots of differences about them that could rub each other wrong. Um, but they really were like, yeah, they were like these intensely competitive brothers. They reminded me, frankly, of my, to some degree, you know, uh, uh, of my relationship to my older brother growing up because we were both into basketball. And he was two years older than me, but I was bigger than him. And we used to have some knockdown, drag out, 
battles on the basketball court where I absolutely hated him. I mean, I just hated him, you know. And But yet he was my brother, and so I loved him too. And they reminded me of that in a way. What was interesting was is that for them, for Gene and Roger, this intensity had carried through many years well into their 40s and no, you know, Gene died, I think, when he was 51. You know, so this wasn't like, you know, teenage brother rivalry. This was grown men <laughs> brother rivalry. Mm-hmm. And when he when he did pass, he didn't tell Roger. When he, when Gene came down with the, you know, with the when he when they discovered the brain tumor uh, that led to his passing, they didn't tell anybody. I mean, uh Gene and his wife Marlene. Marlene's in the film, and she's a hugely important voice in this movie. She talks about in the movie about how they didn't tell anyone. Only the most immediate family knew. They didn't even tell their kids because, as as Marlene explains, they didn't want the kids to be watching the clock and looking at their father like, when is he going to die? And they also, because Gene was famous, a famous film critic, they didn't want it to turn into this kind of huge national story. Totally understand all that. They, they made a decision to keep it as private as possible. But it did really hurt Roger's feelings because Roger had been working with Gene all these years. He could see that something was wrong with him, you know. I mean, everyone could tell that Gene was sick. They just didn't know what was going on or how serious it was. And so, yeah, it did hurt. Roger's feelings that he wasn't told and it and it was a it prompted him as we as you learn in the film from Roger's wife Chaz it prompted Roger to make a decision that should you know serious illness befall him which it did that he was going to deal with it in a different way that he was going to be more public with it well he was certainly going to share it more with the people they knew and were close to them but it also led I think to Roger making a decision to kind of wage his battle with all the the cancer that he struggled with in a more public way, which I thought was incredibly courageous. His view on death at that time was really uh, remarkable and made an impact as a as an audience member. They, I remember there's the one scene where they're in the hospital, the three of you, you and Chaz and uh, Chaz Ebert, Roger's wife, and Roger, and he's saying, this is act three. This is a new experience, and death is just all part of life. So we, I'm looking forward, not looking forward necessarily, but embracing this yeah. transition. Yeah, he says, you know, if he were to, he says something on the order of, if he were to die suddenly, what kind of a third act would that be? You know, I mean, it's like, no, and I think Roger, I mean, when you, re- when you read Roger's memoir, the very first line of the memoir, which we, we have in the movie you know, I can't remember it verbatim now, but it's something like, you know, that he has basically seen his life as a movie. And he doesn't know where it's going, but he's enjoying the ride. And I do think that Roger, pretty early on, began to look at his life in that way as this this incredible movie adventure. Sometimes it was an adventure story when he was traveling around the world and having his adventures. And sometimes it was a comedy and sometimes it was a tragedy. <laughs> and I think he, he was able to kind of look at his life in that way and not do it in a facile, superficial way, but to really kind of see the adventure of life and be able to sort of live in the middle of it and relish it all, even the good times and the bad times, 
uh, for what you know what it has to say about the craziness that that life can be. And I think that's why he called his film Life Itself. I mean, his his memoir Life Itself. When I first picked up the book, I thought, what a kind of odd name for a a memoir from a film critic, Life Itself. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you you really start to understand why he might have made that choice because Roger so fully embraced life and along the way he also then fully embraced what was coming with his imminent death. And it's one thing to write those things when it's not literally yet at your doorstep. I think we all want to think that we would have that grace and courage and equanimity in the in the face of it all. But, you know, he really he really walked the walk when when the time came. Did he change your view of death? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a young guy, but I'm not my health is very good. I, I it's I don't think about death at my age, you know, uh yet. I I don't I don't think about mortality in in any kind of deep way. I think about getting old, but not death yet. That, that's yet to come. But given, given the way I've viewed getting old, uh, I don't think I, I think I can definitely learn from <laughs> Roger about facing the inevitable. Uh, and I think we all can. You know, I think he, his fearlessness about it and his good cheer, his even, you know, even maintaining a sense of humor in his, in his strong work ethic, that it didn't matter how hard it was to type. You know, we learn early in the film that, you know, Roger wrote at the speed of typing that he could knock out a review that was fully thought out and beautifully constructed in 30 minutes, which would make him the envy of just about every critic out there. Uh, for him to do that, he, you know, and that he was very, very fast typer. He was, a, he was not, he was an old style reporter hunting and pecking for the keys, but he was so fast at it, it didn't matter. You see him in these later scenes of his life. His typing is very, very slow. He's nowhere near that, you know, able to do what he did before just physically. But yet it didn't stop him. He's still doing those reviews dutifully, watching those movies, and doing what he had done for 50 years. And there's something quite inspiring about that as well. You're listening to Profiles. Our guest today is filmmaker Steve James. I want to ask you about your next film, Generation Food. Um, what can you tell us about this film? Well, I can't tell you a whole lot, uh, partly because it's evolving. It, it started out to be a, a kind of feature documentary, hopefully, uh, based in part and in collaboration with uh, a writer named Raj Patel, very brilliant 
uh, writer on issues of food and politics and economics. He wrote, a, he wrote a terrific book called Stuffed and Starved, and he has been working on a new book that would be called Generation Food, and the film was going to be a kind of companion to that. But we kind of discovered along the way of, that there was just so many aspects to this issue of looking at, in this case, looking at um, where people around the world are kind of pushing back against the rules, uh, the economic and political rules of, that govern what we eat and who gets to grow what we eat. And, you know, and so we, we, we kind of realized that this was such a big topic. How are we going to fit this all in one film in any kind of way? In a book, you can do it much more easily because he has chapters devoted to all these various stories. We can't do all those various stories in a, in a movie and not have it play like a movie. So we've kind of recently made a decision to, to, to turn it into a transmedia project. And a transmedia project, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with that, is that it will, it will largely be an internet-based website with hopefully all kinds of innovative and sometimes interactive elements to it, but it also will allow us to kind of go everywhere in the world and tell stories, you know, and you as a viewer can navigate your way through it and pick your way through it, and it will it will just be a very different kind of experience, and it just seems more apt uh, for the topic that we're trying to do. So it's all kind of in flux right now. We're 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 really literally just now kind of figuring out how that's going to be manifested. So it may not be chronological. No, it. In other words. We've been following stories in Peru and in Maine and in India and in Malawi and in San Francisco. And so instead of putting together a film uh, where we would go from story to story or however we might construct it, those stories will all be individual stories that you can then just – you can watch the Malawi story. And then you might say, I want to watch the main story or I want to – see Raj interview, we're doing this thing, we want to do this thing where, you know, Raj, we've done a couple of them, where Raj will sit down and have a meal, more kind of like instead of my dinner with Andre, it'll be my dinner with Raj, where Raj will have a meal with someone. In some cases, it'll be someone whose view about the food system is more sympathetic to Raj, but he will play a kind of devil's advocate because he's very smart and sort of challenge some of that thinking. And in other cases, we we filmed one of these already. He's sitting across from someone who has a completely different view of the way the food system works, and it will be a a, a much more uh, of a debate over a, over a meal about a particular aspect of the food system. And so we want to you know we want to make room for him to do several of those and have them be a feature on the transmedia site. So the, all these disparate things, it's really hard to kind of make a single movie out of something like that that anyone would sit down and watch in one setting and really get. So this is a much, much better idea. And then we're, you know, we're hoping we can involve other filmmakers too around the world, literally, who might have a story that they think would make a a strong 10-minute, 5-minute, 15-minute, longer piece that then can become part of our transmedia undertaking. That's a very exciting project. And it kind of shows how the internet and new opportunities are presented through the internet. And, you know, something really interesting is happening with documentary and the internet. There, there is this whole art form 
on the internet sort of that's evolving and has been for a number of years now. Um, National Film Board of Canada has been at the forefront of it, where it's like how to tell documentary stories in a nonlinear, in, in an interactive way for an audience. Uh, and there's some incredibly innovative stuff going on in, in that realm that is literally a different way of telling stories and documenting the world. And it's, so it's all very exciting. Are there any in particular that you would share as? Well, yeah, there's one called High Rise. You can easily find it. The filmmaker created a kind of fictional high rise in a, in a city. And you as a viewer can go from apartment to apartment. And, in, and it is sort of like a UN of high rises. So it's like in this apartment, there's a family from Chicago. In this apartment, there's a family from somewhere in the, you know East Asia. In this apartment, there's someone from an you know I've, I saw it so long ago. I'm having trouble remembering specific countries, but and it's like a window into the lives of that, those people, their that family in that place in the world. But they're all in the same high rise, as as it were, and it's and you can go around the room and you can click on artifacts or things in their environment and learn about it. They, they, that uh, it might be, you know, speak to the culture or to their personal family history. I mean, it's a totally amazing interactive experience. And there's no, so there's no uniform story through that you're following. You, you really are in complete control as to where you go and whose story you, you hear and watch and, and listen to. And so it's just, you know, it's won many awards. There's another one called Pine Point, which is about a, a, um, a community that no longer exists in Canada. Uh, I forget which province, but they recreate its history through people's photographs and recollections. And they, it's like a way of having preserved this community that is now gone. And it's, you know, again, beautifully put together, totally interactive storytelling. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of these out there. Those are two that, that stand out as, and they've won, I think, a number of awards. You can find them easily online. Thank you. Steve James, thanks for being on Profiles. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.